Good morning, everyone. Why don't we begin this special opportunity, this time of prayer together this morning with a special prayer to the Holy Spirit as we begin reflecting on the mysteries of our Lord's love for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful, and enkindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Let us pray. O God, who by the light of the Holy Spirit did instruct the hearts of the faithful, grant us through the same Spirit a love and relish for what is right and just, and a constant enjoyment of his consolations. Through Christ our Lord, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. Saint Francisco, pray for us. Saint Jacinta, pray for us. Servant of God, Lucia, pray for us. Venerable Fulton J. Sheen, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, it is, as I said this morning during the homily, um, an incredible honor to welcome you uh, virtually into Sacred Heart Catholic Church here in beautiful Salisbury, North Carolina. And a lot of times when I throw out the word beautiful, I'm just, you know, being kind. But I will say that right now in early April, it's pretty hard to find anywhere more beautiful than Salisbury, North Carolina. And hopefully, uh, for all those of you watching from outside of Rowan County here in North Carolina, I hope someday to be able to welcome you here uh, inside our beautiful Church of Sacred Heart. And uh, just as a tip of the hat to our parishioner here, Ray Paradowski, I just want to mention we are in the midst of a capital campaign to continue to strive to pay for our beautiful church. Uh, we're calling our campaign, which is a debt reduction campaign, leaving an inheritance. Ray, I've done my duty right out of the gates, done a little bit of penance in uh, honor of St. Jacinta and St. Francisco. I really dislike asking for money, so I might as well start with the hardest part, right? Uh, so just want to let you know, as uh, we gather together today, uh, where this idea even came from. Um, as I'm sure all of you, and as you know right here at Sacred Heart, parishes across the country, across the world, we're all kind of scrambling to get creative, right? To figure out whatever we can do during this most important time of the entire liturgical year to stay close to Jesus Christ. And our normal methods of just coming together, worshiping together, are being taken from us in, in many different ways in light of the COVID-19, the coronavirus, this current pandemic. And, you know, just we got to pray for all of our civil leaders um, to help us, you know, at this time to, of course, to keep us safe. And I think it's important to pray for them, you know, for all of the uh, gifts of the Holy Spirit, for wisdom and understanding, knowledge and counsel, uh, piety and fortitude, and, of course, fear of the Lord. And of course, fear of the Lord, that's where we come in and ultimately it's more important than our physical health, is love of Him. 
And so at this time, it's not as though we just sort of say, okay, everybody's on vacation for April. And I want to say, too, as an aside, I realize some of you are definitely not on vacation. For all those that are healthcare workers or, you know, people striving to keep things going, I realize you're at this all the time. And all of us need to remember to keep praying for everyone, especially those on the front lines, you know, our first responders, our military personnel, for all of our doctors and our nurses, for, you know, the folks who are doing janitorial work in the hospital, for all of those out there who are on the front lines, let's keep praying for them. And of course, you know, for those of us who are at home right now, who are confined to our houses, you know, to pray that we make the most of this time. And as our Holy Father reminded us the other day, we need to pray for the homeless. I mean, any time that those four walls seem to be kind of closing in a little bit, pray for those who don't have four walls, you know, to make sure that we remember the good things that we have. Even if we may not have as much toilet paper as we would like, let's remember those who have no toilet paper at all. You know, it's important to keep in mind all of these different things. Well, in light of all of this, and I don't need to go through, you know, what a unique time this is and all of that, but a week ago yesterday, I was talking to my good friend and yours, Frank Spicer, on the phone about what we could do today. Because luminaries of Holy Mary uh, all over the world, four times a year, try to do something special, especially during Advent and Lent, uh, sort of a spiritual retreat, you know, time to come together to support one another in the faith. And even though we're not able to all gather together physically under the same roof right now, nevertheless, you know, thanks, thanks be to God for the gift of modern technology. Although I will say, especially to those of you in Northern Virginia, uh, Father Paul Scalia got it dead right in his article, I think from two weeks ago now, from the Catholic thing about priests without people. We're seeing how good you know, technology is, what a wonderful tool it is. We can live stream the Mass, but at the same time, we're also seeing that it can never replace that face-to-face -face human interaction. And so until we're all able to gather together in person again, uh, we're using the gift of modern technology uh, to all of us come together. And I'll tell you, I'm just very humbled and excited to welcome so many of you into our beautiful church here at Sacred Heart. Uh, those uh, in Charlotte, especially St. Vincent de Paul Parish, uh, those in Northern Virginia, uh, those in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, uh, Indiana. And just to say to those folks, even if I've never met probably most of you, some of your priests are some of my best friends in the world, especially from my time in the seminary, Father Jake Runyon, Father Andy Budzinski, you have some wonderful priests up there. I want to say hello to uh, my dear friends, the sisters of the Alianza de Santa Maria in Portugal. Uh, I hear that they are tuning in with us today, and I would say probably a lot of what I'm going to say, let's just go ahead and cite it right now and say I probably stole it from Sister Angela. She's so good. And the rosary I have right here was a gift from Sister Benedita. So sisters, you're very much present with us as we pray today. I understand the Dominicans of the Perpetual Rosary are with us. Frank told me that there are a few different folks in Brazil and Germany, and so just welcome. It's great to have you all here. And the idea for the talk, like I said, I talked with Frank just over a week ago, and, uh, and he's so kind and said, you know, I know you're busy, Father, but can we possibly do a talk? Well, this is what I came up with, and I hope that this works. Um, what I decided to do for a talk uh, is to pull something that I've already written, but 
I never wrote it to be just one long <laughs> exhortation, so I hope that it works. But just to give you a little bit of background, I was blessed along with my dear friend, Father Paul McNulty, uh, back in February to lead a pilgrimage to Fatima with Frank Spicer. Unfortunately, Mary Sample couldn't join us this time. Vicki Boren filled in and kind of overseeing us, but many wonderful pilgrims from here at Sacred Heart and up in Northern Virginia. And uh, just before leaving on the Feast of the Presentation, February 2nd, I had a couple of big assignments I was given to get done before we flew over to Fatima. The first one, I mean, like, like any assignment, I'm very, very good at procrastination. So one of the first assignments that I had, uh, my dear friend, Father David McConey, is the editor of Homiletic and Pastoral Review. It's an online magazine, and he asked me, a year ago, I think, to write uh, the homilies for March of 2020. And I really wanted to have them done before leaving for Fatima. And I didn't get them done before leaving for Fatima. I was almost done. I basically had a skeleton, uh, you know, sort of outline completed. In fact, when we were delayed in Newark, when leaving for Fatima, I was sitting at one of the countless tables covered in iPads at the Newark airport, working on these homilies uh, to submit to my friend, Father McConey. And one thing that kind of delayed getting those done was in mid-January, I was asked by the Catholic company and their subsidiary, Good Catholic, to do a series on the rosary. And it was a surprise, something, their, their other location, another speaker had fallen through. They asked me, we had about like a, about 10 days, I think, to put it together. We filmed those right here in the center aisle. And uh, it was a huge gift to get to do that, but it was like that big assignment of a 40-day reflection period, writing all the homilies for March, and getting that all together. Well, as you well know, March eventually approached, and there was this feeling of like, all right, I already did all the work, I got it all done, I'll be ready, you know, homilies are very well prepared going into March. And then you may remember back towards, I don't know, the first half of March, the whole world fell apart, right? And so you can't just take a homily that you wrote in January and just apply it in March as though we're not in the midst of a pandemic. So those five homilies that I wrote, I think I got to basically use two of them, although I kind of adapted them, you know, to kind of bring them up to date. Obviously things go out of date in a month, but you know, so a lot of those homilies I didn't really get to use. But one of the great things about being asked to write the whole series of homilies for all of March was to look at all of the Gospels in particular as all part of one piece. Uh, if any of my brother priests are watching, uh, I'm sure we all kind of approach our homilies a little bit differently. I wish that I was better about looking at the big picture and sort of planning the homilies out, and sometimes I do that. Michael Becker, who's working the camera in the back, we meet every week, we talk about the homilies that are upcoming, and sometimes we, are, uh, we have enough foresight to start getting like a series ready, especially when we hit, say, like Advent, when you have, you know, four weeks together. Um, a, a year ago, we did the four cardinal, or the, yeah, the uh, four cardinal virtues. So that was great. I mean, it was a nice series of homilies. But a lot of times, it's a little bit rare that I look at the whole big picture, right? Well, this year, in looking at year A, uh, basically, and this was the nice thing too, we had five Sundays in March. And so not only did we get the first Sunday of Lent, which is always an account of the temptation of Jesus in the desert. This year it was St. Matthew's account. Uh, the second week is always the transfiguration. 
And then, since we're in year A, we got the three Gospels of John that we hear anytime we have the scrutinies, but also every year A. And they're long Gospels for Mass. But I asked, and I know if you got Frank or Mary's email, you saw that I asked you to go back and look at those Gospels again. What are those four Gospels? John chapter 4, Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. Uh, John chapter 9, the man born blind. And the one that we just heard last Sunday, John 11, the raising of Lazarus. Now, what I did for that series of homilies was I took the temptation of Jesus in the desert and sort of compared those three temptations with the three Gospels from John that we hear during Lent. Uh, as I said, I'm, what I want to do is sort of address all of that today in one sort of big talk, putting them all together. I originally wrote them as obviously individual homilies. I'm going to try to kind of pull them together today. I hope it works out. If it doesn't, um, consider this a really good uh, bit of penance, you know, here at the end of Lent. Um, but let's just keep praying for each other and praying that our Lord leads us deeper and deeper into relationship with him, especially as we meditate on his temptations and the way that he continues to show us how to overcome the temptations of the devil throughout his whole public ministry right to his death on the cross. So if you remember back to the first Sunday of Lent, the very first reading we got on that Sunday was from Genesis chapter 3. So, you know, we're only three chapters into the Bible at this point. And for those of you who are scripture scholars, you know that right out of the gates, things don't just sort of stay great, do they? Genesis 1 and 2, things are going really well. But then, of course, Genesis chapter 3, we all know what happens, right? The serpent, the most cunning of all of the animals, comes into the garden, approaches our first parents. And what does he say to our first parents? Did God really tell you not to eat from any of the trees of the garden? It's so cunning and terrible, right? That right from the beginning, he just inserts this doubt, right? There they are in the Garden of Eden, given so much, all of this beauty, all of this glory. You know, they're walking in the evening, the cool breeze, all this lovely stuff. It must have been like North Carolina in April, you know, like all of this just gloriousness. What does he do? He puts in this little bit of doubt. Did God really tell you you couldn't eat from any of the trees of the garden? Okay, first of all, of course he didn't tell them that, right? He didn't create the Garden of Eden. He didn't give them all of this and then say, sit and look at it. That's it. You know, I don't want you to be happy. No, he loved them. He loved them into existence. He formed them out of the clay of the ground. He breathed his life into them. But then all of a sudden, here comes this doubt. And it's almost like, you know, going back and rereading it. It's like going into the confessional day after day. The... Uh, it's like when you rewatch a movie, you know, and you know that something stupid is about to happen. Like, I'm, I'm watching right now for our sort of like community time, the seminarians and I, we're rewatching The Lord of the Rings, okay? We're working our way through the extended cut. Um, we're only on to disc two of The Fellowship of the Ring, the very first one. It is a long movie. But I can't tell you how many times I've said, you know, why couldn't they just throw out that Paragon took from the beginning? The guy who just keeps messing up, right? It's like, here's this ominous lake as they're trying to get in to the mines of Moria. Yes, I'm a huge nerd, by the way. But, you know, like they're trying to get in, right? And what does stupid Peregrine Took do? He starts throwing rocks into this, you know, ominous lake. 
And of course, Aragorn stops him, and then this like huge octopusy sort of creature comes out to try to get. It's terrible, and it's like you moron, what are you doing, throwing rocks into this lake that should not be disturbed? Right? You just want him to stop. So we read the Genesis account. We know what's coming, right? The trouble is, we've all experienced it. Did God really tell you that you can't have any fun this weekend? Did he tell you that you are condemned to a life of just boring nothingness where all you get to do is pray the rosary? Did God really tell you that you're obliged to spend time with him every day? I mean, those sort of doubts that get planted right there, right? We still feel the effects of that. We're still tempted all the time to fall in to the same trap that our first parents did. Because instead of listening to the love that our Lord had for them, the love that God gave them in creating them, the love that he gave them in even giving them guidelines, right? I mean, he loved them more than the animals. He created them in his image and likeness. And even giving them the guidelines is a sign of his love for them. And yet what do they do? They take matters into their own hand. They buy into the doubt and they reach out and they take that fruit and they eat of it. And we've been living with those damned consequences ever since, right? I mean, we've been living in this fallen world, in this valley of tears, because they turned their back on God, because they took matters onto their own hands or into their own hands, which leads to one of the saddest questions in all of sacred scripture. God is saying, where are you, right? They go away from him. They hide themselves in the garden, right? Why? Because they're naked, because they're afraid. All of these things, and God has to say, where are you? The great news for us, and we know this, right? Especially as we're on the doorstep of the holiest days of the year. Thank God that he loves us so much to not just leave it there. He doesn't just say, where are you? He comes looking for us. Doesn't just do it from afar. Doesn't just sort of like only send, you know, servants and other people to go looking for us. It's the very beginning of the book of Hebrews. And I'm just paraphrasing here. But, you know, God spoke to us in, in various ways, partial in various ways through the prophets throughout the centuries. But now he's spoken to us fully. He sends us his word. He sends us the word incarnate, Jesus Christ himself, right? If you look at what we have done, if you look at the fall of our first parents, you know, they put themselves in a place that God has to say, where are you? They take matters into their own hands. They turn their back on God. And I want to share with you a quote from Pope Benedict XVI that I just read yesterday, actually, in the Daily Reflection from Benedictus. Um, I think our camera's good enough now that you might be able to see a book. I don't know. But you may have heard of this before. It's from Magnificat, Daily Reflection from Pope Benedict. Read it every day. Incredible. But the one, there was a, the concluding uh, couple of sentences from the quote yesterday summarizes temptation so well. And this is what Pope Benedict said. The germ of all temptation is setting God aside so that he seems to be a secondary concern when compared with all the urgent priorities in our lives. To consider ourselves, the needs and desires of the moment, to be more important than he is, that is the temptation that always besets us. For in doing so, we deny God his divinity and we make ourselves, or rather, the powers that threaten us into our God. 
And there you have it. What do, the, what do our first parents do? They turn away from God. They make him secondary. It's like, yeah, 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 we know what you said, but we're going to do what we want. We're going to do what we think is best. The devil has inserted this doubt. They buy into it. They set God aside. He's now secondary. They reach out and take the fruit. We find ourselves in a valley of tears. But we have a God who loves us. We have Jesus Christ, the Word incarnate, the one who becomes one of us totally. Like us in all things but sin. Fully human, fully divine, in our midst, laying down his whole life for us. He is, as the title of the book from uh, Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, God in search of man. God comes looking for us. The good shepherd lays down his life. He enters into this valley of tears with us. He is Emmanuel, God with us. And the thing is, he doesn't just sort of do it in a, you know, I I don't want to say this. He doesn't do it in a sort of like temporary or from a distance sort of a way, right? He's not like, for example, I'm sorry, this is what the example is that comes to my mind. Uh, Right now, our directives, if I need to go and anoint a COVID-19 patient, I, as a priest, obviously need to suit up like everybody else. And I can use an instrument, a cotton ball, for example, and dip that in the holy oil and anoint the person, right? Our Lord doesn't just use a cotton ball, right? He doesn't even use the protective gear. He's right in the midst of all of this with us. He lays down his whole life. You know, I mean, think about this, and we're going to hear it a little bit as we reflect on the man born blind. Jesus spits on the ground. He makes clay with his saliva. You know, that which makes the words in our mouth. He uses to make clay and anoint his eyes and tells him to go wash. Then he can see. Our Lord, for lack of a better phrase, gets down and dirty with us. He doesn't stay apart in order to sort of like keep himself clean. He never commits sin, right? He never gets dirty in that way. But he's not worried about lowering himself, emptying himself to be right in the midst of all of this with us. And we see one of the ways that he empties himself so fully in the way that Lent opened up in the first gospel that we reflected on at a Sunday Mass, at Sunday Mass in Lent, the temptation of Jesus in the desert. I'm going to break that up now into three parts and reflect on those three temptations in the light of the three Gospels of John that we heard on the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent. So the first temptation of Jesus in the desert. This is the way that Gospel began. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 4. We're going to reflect on verses 1 to 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And he fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And afterwards... He was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, it's such an important way, I think, to start, right? Because I think when most of us think about Lent, it's very easy to go right to everything that we're going to give up, right? I will tell you, I'm pretty darn happy that a week from right now is Holy Saturday. A week from tomorrow, the eighth day, is Easter Sunday. It's going to be glorious. I know we can't all come together. It's sad, but at the same time, 
we do recognize the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead. The Mass will continue to happen. We continue to see him in our midst and we continue to pray that very soon you will be able to receive him physically in the Blessed Sacrament. Until then, we pray that beautiful prayer of spiritual communion. We stay linked up with him. But at the very beginning of Lent, you know, as we're giving things up, that's tough. I am I, obviously, okay, I have to say this as a priest and I honest to goodness mean it. The thing I'm most excited about is the resurrection, celebrating the fact that we have hope. But I'm embarrassed to say how close the second is. I'm pretty excited to be able to drink beer again. All right, it's kind of embarrassing, but it is true. I gave it up. It's been tough. I was very excited to get to enjoy it again on March the 19th as we celebrated the Solemnity of St. Joseph. And on March the 25th, we celebrated the Solemnity of the Annunciation. I will also be honest with you, I know there's a debate back and forth about Sundays in Lent. Some I've been better than others. I have had a beer on many a Sunday this Lent. It's been a crazy one. But nevertheless, I'm very excited to get to the point where I can have some of that beer again. In the words of G.K. Chesterton, we have to thank God for the gift of beer by not having too much of it, right? And it's that way with all of those things we give up. But, you know, it's easy for us to cry out and to want those things, right? It's hard to fast. It's hard to let go of things because we're told so much, and frankly, we believe it, that we need these things to make us happy, right? We need to, you know, have the stuff that we told ourselves no about in order to be fulfilled. But it's just not the case. And the beautiful thing is, is that Jesus Christ shows us. He doesn't just say it, right? It's not as though he's just sitting there in perfect comfort, like the ghost of Christmas present from Charles Dickens, right? Surrounded by all the fruits of the present moment and, you know, and all of these smorgasbords of just, you know, uh, glorious imbibing and drink and food and all this and saying, hey, food's not the most important thing, everybody. Well, no, that's not the way that Jesus does this. He fasted in the desert for 40 days. And I love that super obvious but important line. And afterwards, he was hungry. The Son of Man emptied himself completely to the point of being hungry. How incredible that is that God allows himself to be hungry. And when the devil tempts him, which is going, hey, fill yourself up. For goodness sakes, you're God. Go ahead and do this. Although, of course, he doesn't start out that way. We'll go back to that. You know, if you are the son of God, command these stones be bread, you know, turn into bread. But Jesus points us to the fact right away that what will ultimately fulfill us is not just the creature comforts of life, right? Even the bare necessities, to quote Jungle Book, right? It's not those super basic things. Now, he doesn't deny that we need them. There's so many times that the Pharisees are kind of scandalized because he eats and drinks with sinners. Jesus knew how to go to parties. He knew how to feast. I mean, think about his first miracle in the Gospel of John, the wedding feast at Cana. Not only does he, you know, help them out. Mary's saying they have no wine. What does Jesus say? I'll go pick up a bottle of Bob Mandavi. No! He makes 180 gallons of the greatest wine anyone has ever tasted. Jesus knows how to appreciate and bring in the gifts of this world. But he also knows that they're not primary. 
He knows what ultimately is the primary source of our fulfillment, of our happiness. And he shows us that even further, because obviously his response is incredible to the devil. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. When you go to the fourth chapter of the Gospel of John and see the way that Jesus interacts with the Samaritan woman at the well, he shows us that he himself lives this out. He himself shows us what his priorities are. It's not just about filling his stomach. It's not just about, frankly, being healthy. It's not just about, oh, I've got to take care of my physical needs. No, there is something so much greater. Think about when his disciples come back, right? So he's had the conversation with the woman at the well. And remember, he's tired. After the, after the day's journey, it's noon, it's hot outside. I assume, you know, the sun's bright. He's there with her. They're talking. The disciples go away to get something to eat, and then they come back. And they're amazed about something, right? They're amazed because they think that maybe someone has brought him something to eat. And what does Jesus say to them? My food is to do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. He's not just here to meet his own bodily comforts. He's one of us, fully human, fully divine, like us in all things but sin. He did eat, he did drink. But what is his primary food? To do the will of the one who sent me and to finish his work. And look at the Samaritan woman at the well. She gets this in spending that time with him as she leaves her bucket behind and runs back to town. That which she originally came for, that you know, basic physical thirst, which is something we all have. And yet, she found the satisfaction of something even deeper. She found the Word of God, the Word of God who came to her, who spent that time with her, who showed her how to be truly fulfilled. She went and told the other people. The other people came. They got to experience the word as well. And even off of her evangelization, that eventually wasn't the primary thing for them. They too had encountered the word of God. They too saw that man does not live by bread alone, but in every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. He was there with them. It's in him that we find satisfaction. The bread, the water, the food, the drink, all those sort of things, they're secondary. They're not primary. What's primary? God. Okay, the second temptation. We know that this is what happened. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will give his angels charge of you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, beautiful second temptation, our Lord refuting the devil once again. And I'd like to spend just a moment or two reflecting on the way that the devil begins each of these first two temptations, right? If you are the son of God. It's almost just like what he did with our first parents in the garden. Did God really tell you? You can't eat from any of the trees in the garden. Of course, he's being cunning. He knows what he's saying. He knows that it's not the truth. For goodness sakes, it's the devil. He's the father of lies. 
But the truth himself is not swayed like our first parents were. That if you are the Son of God doesn't penetrate through the armor of the love of God. Love incarnate, Jesus Christ himself. There, he doesn't respond that if you are the Son of God, he continues on trusting in our Lord. The devil tries to pull us away, just like he did with our first parents. But what do we need to combat that? We need faith in knowing that Jesus Christ really does love us, that we are the sons and daughters of God, that by our baptism, we are in the body of Christ, that we're part of the Holy Catholic Church, that we have hope in the midst of all of this. And even if he says, you know, if you are a child of God, well, no, you can tell him where he can take that if, right? He can take it somewhere else. I wish I could say something worse, but I'm standing in my beautiful church, right? No, throw that if away. You are a son or a daughter of God. Jesus Christ is with us. And when we see, you know, the devil is trying to tempt him to put God to the test, to throw himself off the pinnacle of the temple. Jesus, of course, says, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. The same is so absolutely true for us, right? And we have a beautiful example of that faith that's so necessary to combat that temptation, that temptation to test God, to test whether or not, are you really the Son of God? And throw yourself off a mountain. Let him show you that you really are. No. What does God show us in the uh, gospel from the fourth Sunday of Lent this year? The man born blind, right? Okay, it starts out that, you know, he doesn't have uh, physical sight. Well, you know, I'd say in, the, in this day and age, most of us don't really have as big of a problem with that. Uh, most of us have access to glasses, to contacts. I'm personally wearing contacts right now. But what this man has is deeper than just the restored sight. Hey, that miracle, incredible. It's awesome what Jesus did. And that man, from the beginning, it's not just the physical sight that he has, it's his obedience, his docility, his willing, willingness to follow what Christ asked him to do. As I said before, what does he do? After the disciples asked, who sinned, this man or his parents? And Jesus says, neither, so that you can see the glory of God. He spits on the ground. He makes clay, puts it on the guy's eyes, tells him to go to Siloam and wash, right? What does the guy do? Does he say, hey, why'd you put dirt on my eyes? No. He just gets up and he goes. And it's interesting to me, too, that the man doesn't even ask from the beginning, right? He's not saying, oh, please, you know, cure me of my blindness. It's as though he's just sort of resolved that this is his lot. This is where he is. And all of a sudden, this miracle comes to him. And then after the fact, in the rest of that gospel, for those of you who just reread it, you know what I'm talking about. Jesus almost seems absent for the majority of chapter 9. We get these dialogues between the man born blind who can now see and the Pharisees, right? And uh, I think it's the uh, temple authorities too. I could be wrong on that. But you know, so there's this dialogue. They're questioning him. You know, there's the threat of being thrown out of the synagogue. His parents are really concerned, so they don't really want to weigh in one way or another. They're kind of on the fence. Yes, this is our son, but talk to him. He's an adult. You can find out from him how things worked out. Now, the man doesn't go looking for a fight. He doesn't go looking even to evangelize. It all comes to him, but through it all, he has faith. He continues to stand up to their question. He just tells the truth about everything that happened, and I love the way that in the midst of that whole dialogue, he gets bolder and bolder. I love when they ask him again, you know, tell us how he did this. He says, I've already told you. Why do you want to hear it again? 
do you want to become his disciples too? You know, to have that kind of faith, that kind of strength is awesome. And then when Jesus comes back and talks to him, you know, and says, you know, uh, I forget exactly how it falls out. I'm sorry I don't have it open in front of me. You know, when the man says, who is he, Lord, that I may worship? You have seen him and I am he. And the man worships him, right? That faith, that faith through all of the challenges, the questioning back and forth leads to the man worshiping Christ. Through all the challenges, the ups and the downs, the glory of the miracle of being able to physically see, which points to the greater glory of the faith of seeing that our Lord is strong and with him so much stronger than the the waffling back and forth, the questioning, the intimidation, the bullying of the Pharisees. He shows through it all that faith is possible. He doesn't say once, you know, Jesus, you cured me. If you really are who you say you are, take care of all this for me. No. He faithfully takes each step by step, continues to follow our Lord along the way. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we're called to the same thing. We're called to be faithful day by day. As I said, I think sometimes, you know, it's like we have access to so many medical cures, right? As I, I think most of us nowadays, you know, we can see physically pretty well because we have so many things to help us out with that. I think one of the most interesting things in the midst of this pandemic is realizing that we're not invincible when it comes to health. But to be honest with you, is that such a bad thing? Especially if it leads us to seeing more deeply. Even if we're not invincible physically, what we need is that invincibility of faith, of trusting in our Lord, of looking toward what ultimately matters, just like the man born blind. To be able to look to Christ through it all and to be able to worship him at the end of it all. Because really, that's what our whole life is about. That's what we've been created to do, to love and to serve God in this, in this life and to worship him and love him forever in the life to come. And he gives us this opportunity to keep growing in faith. Now, it doesn't always happen exactly as we would like it to. I like the example of a couple about to get married, right? If the groom says to his soon-to-be bride, prove to me that you're going to love me in five years. How about in 10 years? How about in 50 years? She can't do it, right? I mean, basically, that love and fidelity of proving over the years that it will happen happens in a day-by-day sort of way. That they continue to lay down their lives for one another and it continues to grow. They don't know what's coming in five years, ten years, or fifty years. As I found out from marrying many couples and working with them through the years, or couples that I've met who have been married for many years, if they knew everything that was coming on the wedding day, they would have run away screaming a long time ago, right? I, and Okay, I'll just compare this back to the priesthood. If I knew everything that was coming in these first 10 years of priesthood, especially in becoming a pastor, I may have run away screaming, right? It's, it's a terrifying thing when you think about all the things you have to encounter, but by God's grace, he continues to prove his fidelity to us, and he wants us to continue to grow in our fidelity to him. And how do we do that? By taking a step one day at a time, not by throwing ourselves off the the cliff or the top of the temple, not by doing ridiculous things and putting God to the test. No, we do it by saying, I do, each and every day. We don't say to God, prove to me that you love me. No, we know that he loves us and we, we ask for that grace to see it 
each and every day of our lives. We stay plugged into that love of him through prayer, and then we do see it, right? It would be incredibly rude for the bride to say to the groom, when he says to her, honey, I love you, if she responded, prove it, it wouldn't be a good thing, right? It's incredibly rude. It's not good for the relationship. How does he prove it? And how does she prove it back? By, like I said, continuing to say, I do, each and every day. The fidelity grows. They continue to grow in that faith in one another. The same thing happens in our relationship with Jesus Christ. We continue to see that he loves us, that he's with us, but it happens one day at a time as we take that next step. Just one final thought on this. One of my good friends, uh, Abbot Placid Solardi, Solari, sorry I threw a D in your name, Abbot. So one of the things that he says when people ask him, when did you know you were called to be a monk? He says very often, when I got out of bed this morning, you know? So every single day, like, when did you know that you loved your wife? When I got out of bed this morning. And I said once again in my heart and by the actions that I commit each day, I do. How do we show that we're a Catholic each and every day? When we enter into the practice of our faith and say, I do. How do we show it? Well, by not just doing the obligations, right? But by growing in that love. That even though, yeah, things are a little bit crazy right now. We're doing everything we can to be creative and get you the sacraments. But know that even as you are in your home, as you're watching me from your living room, rather than our relatively uncomfortable pews, right? At least you got a more comfortable seat, right? Even though you're there, it doesn't mean that his love is gone. And each and every day, even in unique circumstances, you keep saying to him, I love you. I believe in you. Help me to adore you, to love you, to hope in you. And dear Lord, I beg pardon for those who don't. Let's keep bringing them into his fidelity more and more. And follow that example of the man born blind. There are good times and bad times, but regardless, we're called to faith in him. Finally, the third temptation. Matthew chapter 4, verses 8 to 10. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And he said to him, All these I will give you, if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, with this one, I think so often, I mean, we can all have the temptation to think, especially in a situation like this, right? Where, as I said before, and sorry to put it in such crass language, but as the whole world seems to be falling apart, It's easy to think, oh, if I were mayor, if I were governor, if I were president, if I was X, Y, or Z, if I were the Pope, I would do this. It would be so much better. You know what? The thing is, and I think a time like this shows us, none of us knows exactly. You know, I mean, sometimes it's tough because there's not like a playbook on how to handle something like this. And I think this temptation in particular shows us, and we should know this, that our ultimate fulfillment and happiness is not going to be found in this life. It's in union forever with our Lord. Whatever governmental structure, no matter how good, no matter how just, no matter how well put together. Hey, I love our uh, bicameral legislature. I love our three branches of government. I think our founding fathers did an incredible job. But you know what? I also know that the United States will not last forever. Because of the fact that, A, it's made up of fallen human beings, there is something called sin, we know that all of us at one point are going to die, and we know that the world will come to an end. So, what's the most important thing? Is it governments being perfect? No, 
It's not. And our Lord recognizes that. He shows us from the very beginning here, right? As we heard from Pope Benedict before, the temptation to set God aside is that primordial and worst temptation. And Jesus is having none of it and says to the devil, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. We have to remember that. The ends don't justify the means. Like we're not allowed to do different things, to rule things, to just, you know, hey, that will make everything better. And for those of you who may be in politics as you listen to today, hey, we need good people in politics. It's absolutely essential. But don't check your faith at the door. Your faith is absolutely essential. We're called to love God and to have him at the heart of everything. Don't lose your soul for the sake of some votes, right? That ultimately we need to lead people to what is the greatest thing that we have. Jesus showed us that it wouldn't have been worth it to take over all of the kingdoms of the world. And I think from our perspective, sometimes it's like, why not? I mean, everything is still so fallen apart, right? That things are still so difficult. The governments today, not a whole lot more moral or better than his time. In fact, I could probably make the argument in some cases that they're worse. And yet, he still says no to the devil's offer, right? You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now, I just want to take one brief sort of an aside, okay, before I get to talking about John 11. Because this is where turning this into one big talk, I wasn't exactly sure how to do it. But I want to focus on one other quote from Pope Benedict XVI before we consider the raising of Lazarus. And in Pope Benedict XVI's uh, first Jesus of Nazareth book, by the way, there are three of them, they're all outstanding, uh, he says this in his chapter on the temptations. And basically, as he gets to the end of the temptations, and we've sort of established, as I think we've already seen, as we've talked about the first two temptations, and even a little bit about this last one, is that Jesus wins the battle, right? I mean, the devil flees away from him, as we'll see in Matthew 4, 11. Devil goes away. The angels come and minister to him. But there is a question at the end of the temptations. Okay, the devil flees. He goes away. Jesus is still there in the desert. But really, what has changed at the end of it all? Pope Benedict puts it this way. What did Jesus actually bring, if not world peace, universal prosperity, and a better world? What has he brought? The answer is very simple. God. He has brought God. It is only because of our hardness of heart that we think this is too little. Yes, indeed. God's power works quietly in this world. But it is the true and lasting power. Again and again, God's cause seems to be in, the, in its death throes. Yet over and over again, it proves to be the thing that truly endures and saves. So here's the thing. What has Jesus brought us, right? He's brought us God. And as Pope Benedict said in that first quote I shared with you, the temptation to set him aside is really the primary temptation that throws everything off. God is at the heart of everything. And even if Jesus had taken over all the kingdoms of the world, that would not have saved us. All those kingdoms have passed away. What ultimately saves us, what brings us out of this fallenness, is God. And God himself, Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, has brought us God. And that's why I say as we start to look at John chapter 11, think about this. Rather than standing on a very high mountain, 
and looking down on the world as the devil took him up that very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He's in this place where he can, you know, condescend on everything. Jesus doesn't stay there, right? He doesn't go sit in some palace. He doesn't demand that people come and serve him. Rather, he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay his life down for, as a ransom for many. And think about where he goes, right? From the top of that very high mountain in the temptation, he rather descends all the way down into the depths of human despair and isolation and loneliness in the face of death. And what do we hear in John 11.35? The shortest verse in all of sacred scripture and yet probably one of the most profound. Jesus wept. He wasn't content to sit on some throne in some palace, to wield some sword that would, you know, smite his enemies and knock them all down. Rather, he went all the way down into the depths of the fallenness in which we find ourselves. And think about the line that led to Jesus wept. When he said, where have you laid him? They say to him, sir, come and see. Jesus is willing to come and see the depths of our fallenness, to enter into all of this with us, and not to just sort of objectively assess it, to say, oh, this is your problem, you need to do this. No, he really is empathetic. He really is compassionate. He really does suffer with us, and he weeps. And it's from the depths of that that he looks up to heaven and says, Father, I thank you for hearing me. I know that you always hear me, but because of the crowd here, I have said this, that they may believe that you sent me. And he calls Lazarus out of the tomb. That beautiful miracle that foreshadows our own resurrection. What has he come to bring us? He's come to bring us God. And my brothers and sisters in Christ, there is no greater gift. The temptation of the devil will continue to be just like it was to our first parents, just like Jesus in the desert. Did he really say this? If you are the Son of God, he tries to separate us from what will ultimately fulfill us, God. He tries to pull us away. Don't let it happen. Yes, we're in a valley of tears. We're faced with the effects of sin and death every single day. But you know what? Bread, not going to overcome it. Putting God to the test, not going to overcome it. Even having all of the kingdoms in the world, all of the power, we're still going to die, right? Ultimately, what is it that pulls us out of that? God. And that's exactly what Jesus has brought us. And that ultimately brings us, I think, to the conclusion of our reflections today. And I think it's so providential and beautiful that as we gather together from across the world, that today is the 101st anniversary of little Francisco's passing, of St. Francisco, who died from what? The Spanish flu epidemic. And even as he found himself in the midst of a pandemic, what did he look to? Not just medicine, right? Not uh, just more comfort, no. He looked to God. And I would say that on this first Saturday, as we've, you know, we're kind of here at the conclusion of spending time together in adoration and praying the rosary, having the holy sacrifice of the mass and meditating on the mysteries of the rosary for 15 minutes what has god given us in this particular age to help us to realize the gift that he's given us he's given us the message of fatima he's given us given us this wonderful gift to focus on the ultimate gift that he's given us god 
What are the many things involved in the message of Fatima that help us to cling to what he has brought us? He gave us his blessed mother. I mean, think about that. I mean, if, if you're like me, and I hope you're not, I hope you're better than I am, but you know, if I'm wanting to get someone's attention because they keep going astray, I mean, I'm probably not going to send in my mom, you know, to go in and say, hey, remember he loves you. I'm probably thinking like, I want to send in my enforcer, right? I want to send in Michael Becker or Tyler Culp, our principal. They're tougher than I am, right? You know, I want to send them in to take care of business. Does God send us, you know, like this angel who's ready to destroy us all, you know, because we don't pray in the proper way, we don't, uh, we don't uh, engage in penance? No, he sends his mother. How incredible that is. She loves us. And she comes to the most humble among us, right? She comes to those beautiful three shepherd children in Fatima. Mary comes to ask us to do what? To pray. To spend time with her son. And of course, the angels are around. And I would say this too, right? If you go back to thinking about the second temptation again, and the devil saying, throw yourself off the temple, and you know, the, the angels will make sure you don't cast your foot against a stone. She says, no, you don't put the Lord to the test. When temptations are done, the devil flees, what happens? The angels come and minister to him. How awesome that is. He waits when he's docile, when he's obedient, when he stands up against the temptation. God gives us what we need. He gave the angel uh, to the shepherd children all the way back in 1916 to start teaching them the prayers. You know, Most Holy Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I adore you profoundly. To pray, my God, I believe, I adore, I hope, and I love you. I ask pardon for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not hope, and do not love you. you know, the angels will help us. Thanks be to God, they don't just like take out all sorts of, you know, uh, in the face of our indifference, in the face of our just treating our Lord so poorly, they don't make us pay for that right away, right? They help us. Our guardian angels help us to know how to pray. Ask your guardian angel every day to help you to remember what you have in your midst. God. I'll tell you, I pray every time I get in my car, the angel of God prayer. I pray it throughout the day too, but just the car is kind of nice because you do it time and time again, I guess, except when we're confined to home during a pandemic. But pray it each and every time you go out of a room, right? Angel of God, my guardian dear to whom God's love commits me here. Ever this day, be at my side to light, to guard, to rule and to guide. Take me by the hand. I promise docile obedience to your guidance that you may lead me to eternal happiness. We have a guardian angel. He'll help you. Ask him for help every single day. It's another thing that we got in the message of Fatima to remind us of what Jesus brought us. God, the Holy Rosary. Keep praying it each and every day. So Mary asked us in the message of Fatima, as she's done so many times in the various apparitions over the years, she's asked us to pray the rosary every day. And I'll tell you, I used to wonder, wow, why the rosary every day and not daily communion? Well, if this time doesn't point us towards that, I don't know what will. The rosary is always available. Whether you're like Maximilian Kolbe in a Nazi concentration camp, uh, whether you're, you know, who knows, stranded in the woods, whether wherever you are, you can pray the rosary. And what does that rosary do? It keeps us linked to heaven like a tether right up there to the hand of our Blessed Mother. What do we reflect on in those 20 mysteries? 
the life of Jesus Christ, the one who has brought us God. Right from the beginning of the joyful mysteries with the Annunciation, through the Visitation, the Nativity, through the Presentation of the Temple, the Finding of Jesus in the Temple, the Luminous Mysteries, the Public Ministry of Christ, reminding us of all that he did in the midst of his time with us. His baptism, the wedding feast of Cana, his proclamation of the kingdom, the transfiguration, the institution of the Most Holy Eucharist. Right now, here we find ourselves on the doorstep of Lent. Tomorrow is Passion, or Palm Sunday, in which we remember the passion of our Lord, everything he did for us, from the agony in the garden to the scourging at the pillar, his crowning with thorns, his carrying of the cross, and that central moment of all of human history, his laying down his life for us and dying for us on the cross. And of course, the rosary reminds us that it doesn't end there, that we have the glorious fulfillment in the glorious mysteries, his resurrection, his ascension, the descent of the Holy Spirit, my brothers and sisters in Christ, by our confirmation, we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. And of course, those beautiful mysteries about our Blessed Mother, her assumption into heaven and her being crowned Queen of heaven and earth. Those 20 mysteries link us up to the mysteries of our salvation. Take the mysteries of your life and link them up with the mysteries of our Lord's life. Let him reveal to you what's going on in your day-to-day life. It's like the man born blind or called to take each step, trusting in him and growing in fidelity. What else do we have? The first Saturday devotions, right? It's like a monthly retreat in which we do all of those things we did this morning to get reconnected with our Lord, to go to confession and have our sins forgiven, to spend time praying the rosary, to meditate on those mysteries for 15 minutes, right? Keeping her company. And what does she do? She helps us to know God, who she, being full of grace, knows better than any of us, and ultimately to receive him in the Blessed Sacrament. Let's pray for that grace to hunger for that day when we get to gloriously receive him again. What else is, is Fatima given us? The example of those incredible saints, the shepherd children, Saints Francisco and Saint Jacinta. <clears throat> what did Saint Francisco hear at that first apparition in May when they asked, you know, will, will we go to heaven? That Lucia and Jacinta found out yes, but Francisco would have to pray many rosaries first, right? And as my friend Sister Sophie said, you know why he had to pray many rosaries first? Because he's a man. No, of course, that's not exactly it. I do love that joke, though, Sister Sophie. That he had to pray those, he had a contemplative nature. And remember, to pray the rosary isn't a punishment. It's to be linked in with that gift that Jesus Christ has brought us, God. And that little guy, Francisco, prayed those rosaries. He lived that contemplative life and was able, 101 years ago today, to be at peace as he lay dying there just outside of Fatima, there at his family home. That ultimately, even in the face of whatever the circumstances are, he had that contemplative nature. He was linked to that gift we were given in God. Look at the example of St. Jacinta, that little nine-year-old who died just over a hundred years ago. In fact, we celebrated that anniversary back in February. She showed us that even in the midst of being alone, being alone in a hospital room, that she could still be linked up with the love of Christ, that she could still focus on our Blessed Mother. Let's ask for her intercession for all those people who find themselves alone right now, that they might know that they're not truly isolated, but that our Lord is with them. That regardless, once again, of the circumstances in which they find themselves, Jesus Christ is present. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the devil from the very beginning 
you know, tried to tempt us away from our Lord, right? Did God really say this? And remember, he tries to do the same thing to you and me. Did he really tell you that you've got to give in to all this devotion stuff? Did he really tell you you've got to be one of those people that prays every single day? Did he tell you you really have to be like that? The thing is, there is nothing better. Jesus Christ really and truly is one of us. He's given us himself fully. And time and again, throughout the ages, continues to call us back to himself. A little over a hundred years ago, our Blessed Mother appeared in Fatima and gave this incredible message to those shepherd children. In October, showed that miracle of the sun to, what, 70,000 people, right? That called us, you know, in the midst of World War I, in the midst coming up on a pandemic, that ultimately what we need to do is stay rooted in our Lord, to keep growing in faith and hope and love, and showed us through the example of those simple children, St. Jacinta, St. Francisco, and of course, let's not forget, servant of God, Lucia, who lived for a few more years until 2005, right? That ultimately, any of us can embrace that gift that God has given us. What did Jesus Christ come to bring? He came to bring us God. And regardless of what our circumstances may be, no matter how afraid we may be of what's going on with all of this pandemic, know this fact that he has overcome the world. He has overcome the devil. He continues to give us God. And ultimately, my brothers and sisters in Christ, there is nothing better. Remember, we don't live on bread alone. We, can't, we are not called to tempt the Lord our God. Don't demand things of him, but lovingly trust him. And remember that fact that he continues to remind us to worship your God and him alone shall you serve. Ask our Blessed Mother, the one who did it better than anybody else. She is full of grace and she keeps us linked up to him with that rosary and helps us to worship him every day. If we do that, if we continue to stay linked up with him, especially in the rosary, especially with the help and the intercession of all the saints, especially those great shepherd children of Fatima, brothers and sisters in Christ, we have God in our midst. As the great St. John Paul II said, who we just celebrated his 15th anniversary of passing, what, two days ago. Remember what he said when he came out that first time to the whole world, who was immersed in a cold war, who had so many unanswered questions in front of her, and yet, what did he say? Do not be afraid. Let that same phrase echo in your hearts today and every day, because Jesus Christ has brought us God. Do not set him aside, but stay focused on what that gift is, the ultimate fulfillment and peace and love and joy of our hearts, the gift that will never, will never fail, will never let us down, and ultimately you and me need to remember all the time that we should not and need not be afraid. Praise be Jesus Christ, now and forever. Now in closing today, I think everyone was sent a prayer to the Holy Shepherds of Fatima for an end to the pandemic. And as mentioned a couple of times, you know, here we find ourselves in this unique uh, virtual time. Um, let's ask for their help. Let's ask for the help of St. Jacinta and St. Francisco in this time of pandemic. And I ask you to please pray along with me. Hopefully you have it at home and I think we're going to try to put it up on the screen as well. So let us pray. Little Seers of Fatima, by a singular grace you were chosen by the Blessed Virgin Mary in her immaculate heart to be turned into great witnesses of Christ. To you, we have recourse today. 
at this moment of medical emergency, of pain, and of trial. One hundred years ago, O oh holy children, you yourselves were afflicted by the terrible Spanish flu epidemic, and you carried in your bodies with marvelous faith the signs and the pains of the evil that you faced towards your Christian death. Our Heavenly Mother had announced to you both the premature death, associating it to the passion of Christ for the salvation of the world. And you, in your sickness and agony, gave testimony through continuous prayer to your complete union to the divine will. Today, 100 years later, we are devastated by another terrible epidemic, and we turn to you with confidence so that through the Immaculate Heart of Mary, which your eyes were able to see while here on earth, you could obtain for us health for our souls and our bodies, a strong faith in the capacity to be in solidarity with those that are suffering this ailment and trial. You who welcome the medical treatments with a gentle smile and meekness of heart, assist and protect all the doctors, nurses, and healthcare providers in their relentless effort in the fight against this sickness. Protect our families, making us rediscover the beauty of prayer recited together, particularly the Holy Rosary, which you held in your hands until your last breath. With you, little shepherds, and with our Blessed Mother, our Mother and Refuge, with complete trust we turn to Jesus Christ, our salvation, who triumphs over evil and death in the Paschal light. Amen. St. Francisco, pray for us. St. Jacinta, pray for us. Most sacred heart of Jesus, have mercy on us. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. Servant of God, Lucia, pray for us. Venerable Fulton J. Sheen, pray for us. The Lord be with you with your spirit. Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Thanks be to God.